Welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damon Ossoff, your host, Paul Frederick. dark dreamy forces that descend upon those who stay up too late on a Saturday night. Tonight, I have an especially Saturnian guest. It's our old friend Toby Chapel. In case you haven't heard of him on a previous episode, Toby's the Grand Master of the Order of the Trapezoid of the Temple of Set. He makes dark, deep, ambient guitar-based music in his project, Eyes of Legia. And he's just published a new book with the venerable inner traditions, Infernal Geometry and the Left-Hand Path, which by all accounts appears to be setting the occult community on fire. Toby, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me back. So tell us about the new book. Well, the book has been a long time coming. It references back to things that go back to the early 1970s with Anton LaVey's The Satanic Rituals. And my own work with the material has spanned back about five years or so during the time I've been writing the book, following on uh, another decade and a half of practice before that. So the, the book has been a bit of a labor of love, I guess you'd say but it's also been something that's needed to be said, something that hasn't been said yet to tell the full story behind the nine angles. Right. So this first came about in Anton LaVey's The Satanic Rituals, which was published in 1972, including a couple of rituals written by Michael Aquino, who, as we well know, was one of the Magister Templis of the Church of Satan, went, went on to become the founder of the Temple of Set. The rituals that Lakino wrote for the book included ones called the Ceremony of the Nine Angles and the Call to Cthulhu. In the Ceremony of the Nine Angles, he drew upon the fiction of H.P. Lovecraft. He drew upon Pythagoras and the meaning and mysticism behind number. He drew upon Anton LaVey's Law of the Trapezoid, which I'm sure we'll be talking quite a bit about during this interview. And he put it all together in a ritual format that had not yet been seen in the satanic world at that time. Within this ritual and the visualization of the nine angles, which is a pentagram superimposed on the trapezoid with the two upper corners of each figure coinciding, there is implied within that ceremony an entire magical system which has been developed over these last 40-some-odd years within the Church of Satan and then later within the Order of the Trapezoid. And this forms the basis of the book and the basis of the history and practice and suggestions for experimentation uh, that are included within the book itself. Yeah, it looks amazing. So here's a, here's an image of it. And, and I just love it. It's, it's so dark. It's so well-made and it's so refreshing when someone puts out um a a book that's covering 
really dark, serious material like this, and the and the and the and the look and feel of the book just goes right along with it. It's it's just amazing, and and I've been reading through it, and I mean, it's really it's it's intense stuff. Um, it's stuff that needed to be said. Why do you think? Why why is this the right time now for you to write about this publicly? Well, it's been a subject that's not been written about much since 1972. There were a couple of articles published by Dr. Aquino that talked about some aspects of it. Uh, there was some work published by Dr. Stephen Flowers, who was also a key player in uh, the development of the system. But no one had compiled all the original sources, nor delved deeply enough into all of the, the history and the aspects of magical uh, and philosophical practice that go into it. So it seemed that after all this time, uh, and given the work that the Order of the Trapezoid has continued to do with it, this seemed like the right time to bring it all out into a coherent system. Now this is interesting, contrasting to what someone else might do, where they may say they had these inspirations, even perhaps the same inspirations, and they create a system by themselves, perhaps even works for them, but they try to, to turn it into something that they want to sell you on. This is a system for you. Well, that's not what ha has happened with the Nine Angles. What's happened is as different, very talented people within the Temple of Set, the Order of the Trapezoid, have continued to work with this system and develop it to add their own ideas to it, to build it up into something, to build it up into a neo-traditional type of system, which has some now 47 years of overt work done on it, combined with thousands of years of historical background that all come together within it. So this is not just one person's system. It's not my system. It's not Michael Aquino's system. It's not Stephen Flowers' system. It's something that has been a collaborative work within the Temple of Sat and within the Order of the Trapezoid that has finally emerged as something which is extensive and coherent enough that it can be taught. Now, one might wonder why not keep it as something secret within the Order or within the Temple. And in fact, that's largely what has happened over the last uh, 40 years of the Temple itself. As we've continued to work with it and continue to share and develop the results of that work with the temple as a whole, we've learned certain things about what needs to be said now that perhaps did not need to be said before. As the temple in general has become a bit more open about some of its practices and its tenets and have very talented people such as Stephen Flowers, Michael Aquino, Don Webb, and so forth, as well as yourself, writing about very... Um, unique and well-developed, well-thought-out uh, magical paradigms that are specific and developed from within the temple, um, this seemed like the right time to add this additional thing to it. This is another aspect of the work of the temple. It's a very important aspect of work within the order of the trapezoid. Over the period from 2008 until 2016, the order spent a total of nine years working through the nine angles as a system, spending one year working with each of the individual angles within it and in the context of those to the whole. Over the course of those, each year, as we would spend uh, 
a year within the order working with it, we would then share with the temple at large during its annual international conclave, where we would have not just the number of people from the, the order, but also people from the wider temple as well. We would share the results of that. We would take feedback from the others. We would discuss it with people within the temple. As we did this, one of the things that came out of this is this book, of this work of this revisiting our roots, revisiting the roots of things so that we can be fully transformed by them, and finding that now we have something that has developed to the point that it's no longer containable just within the temple. It needs to work within other minds as well in order to be fully realized. And so this is not as uh, one might think of spilling the beans, right? Revealing the secrets of the, of, of the order and of the temple. This is something that the time has come that is matured enough within ourselves and within the way that we have developed it that we can share it beyond the temple and know that it will do good work within the world as well. And that perhaps some may realize that they're called to the temple and the order. That's not its primary purpose, but that would be a welcome side effect. The more overt goal is to have it become something that moves beyond just a small group of people dedicated to it and into something much larger to let it work within the world as a burgeoning a new tradition. So in one sense, would you say this is um, the next stage in the development of the system itself, the system of infernal geometry, the next stage involves it? going out and beyond into unknown territories to, to, to sort of like um, have that organic sort of growth relationship of information, how when information is seeded in minds, it grows into new perspectives. Definitely. That's definitely part of what's behind the impetus with uh, putting the book out there. When I first began to write it, I was unsure whether I would write it just for the temple or if I would write it for the public. As it developed, I realized more and more it needed to be written for the public in order for me to fully articulate what needed to be said about it. So when you, when you have something that's a great secret, there are two things you can do with it. You can keep it to yourself. You can continue to draw on its power. But that ultimately can be limiting, right, because you – there's only so much that you can do without the benefit of the perspective of others. And it doesn't mean that you need their approval. What it means is that you're looking to have the perspectives of other minds looking at the, the thing in question and showing you things about it that you couldn't discover on your own or that might have taken you too long to discover on your own. So that other option, of course, is to reveal what needs to be revealed of it while still holding the core of it to yourself, continuing to develop it, but releasing enough of it beyond yourself into the world so that others can develop it and to work with you symbiotically to, to fully develop the idea. This is, in a, in a nutshell, what the temple itself is for. We are an organization of individuals, which is certainly paradoxic at first glance, but we do that with the purpose of becoming even greater individuals within ourselves, of drawing on the benefit of the perspective and the wisdom and the experimentation of others that we can be enriched as well. So a lot of what how you were um, describing that made me think of, of uh, doing music. So I'll just jump right to that question right here because you're also a musician. You do um, Eyes of Legia. 
Um, you do great ambient stuff, great guitar work. Is there? Do you have sort of a similar um, process when putting your music out there? I, definitely. I, I I tend to develop music just by myself. Uh, I've for most of my career I've worked as an individual, uh, not within groups. Although I have done work within groups from time to time. I, and the reason I do that is twofold. One, um, it's more time effective that way, honestly, because then I can record and write whenever I need to and not have to worry about the schedule of others. Uh, but it's also because when I create music, I come to it with a vision of what I want it to be, and I want that vision to be as pure as it can. But there, there's a point in that where you need to release it outside of yourself in order for it really to live. Uh, it's definitely analogous to the, my... Um, story about sharing secret, sharing the secret, right, is if you keep it to yourself, there's only so much that you can do with it. If you take the leap of uh, letting it out beyond yourself, you now have the benefit of perspective of others that may help you to refine it, may help you to more fully realize your vision. I have several people whose opinions I highly respect that I always uh, listen to my music before release to get their feedback about the music itself, the production, the aesthetic behind the particular piece, et cetera, which I think is a very important thing to do so that it's still a product of my mind first and foremost, but it's also become something that has been shared with kindred spirits who can then show me something about it I may not have seen before or heard before. Yeah. So that's the, that's kind of ties in with the idea of casting forth the black flame and and the power um the the benefit of the this the gift of this is that it eventually when it returns to you you get have that realization of uh perhaps how you've changed in 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 relation to it and and you get another level of nourishment by seeing it come back to you after it's been out there in the in the world definitely well that's one of the secrets behind the name infernal geometry it's meant to be sort of a play on words as, as a um, is like standing in opposition to sacred geometry, which is fairly well known. But it's not just uh, making it satanic or or dark just for the sake of it. It's also something essential about it as well. Uh, within the figure of the nine angles, with the pentagram and the trapezoid coinciding with the upper points uh, meeting each other, um, as you can see on my my necklace as well, um, was a figure that was originally suggested by Anton LaVey in the early days of the Church of Satan, talking in the late 60s. And in fact, for a while, it formed part of the logo of the church, where he had the, the trapezoid with the pentagram imposed on it, and he had the flames from the bottom, sort of like the flames of licking it as if it was in the fire, being, uh, being strengthened by, by the fire. So infernal geometry is meant to sort of reference that, the, to honor that that source of the imagery, but also to uh, draw that very overt connection to the black flame, because this is the perspective that one has on geometry through the use of the black flame, which is the gift of isolate intelligence, the the form of the Prince of Darkness that allows us to become individuals by fully developing our own unique manifestation of that flame. 
And so here, this is meant to be a contrast. I draw, I draw further on the parallels. I sort of develop the concept within the book, um, and primarily in the chapter on, about geometry, where I, I talk about sacred geometry in detail because it's a, a very valid form that has centuries, if not millennia, of practice behind it. It has very specific tenets, very specific aesthetics. And the sort of the distinction that I draw there is to say that sacred geometry is about the right-hand path. Sacred geometry is about harmonizing with nature, harmonizing with God as seen as a all-encompassing monolithic thing. Whereas, which, which explains why you would see sacred geometry used in temples, used in uh, used in very symbology designed to, to show more esoteric sides of the right-hand path. Whereas, in contrast, the way I develop infernal geometry is this, this is about the left-hand path. This is about the individual. This is about the individual touched by the black flame using geometry as a means of interacting with the world, a means of conceptualizing the world, and of tracing their own path within it. So you mentioned um, a, a lot of this, we're talking about putting things out uh, into the public and, and, and putting things out into the world beyond you. So um, in relation to that, um, you and I were just in Portland, uh, about a month ago, around uh, the time of uh, Walpurgis Nacht, I believe. And there was a, a Black Flame left-hand path conference there. And, and you gave a talk at it and where you introduced a lot of these ideas. What was the response like there? How did that go for you from your point of view? Uh, the response was very good. I spoke with many people there who were interested in the forthcoming book. Um, the book had not yet been published, although I had a much smaller version of some of the essential ideas as sort of like a, a glorified pamphlet, <laughs> really, um, that I did make available to people who were interested in it. Um, the response was very good. There was a lot of anticipation around these ideas. And I, the, the talk that I gave there was focused on the runes uh, specifically, although I did make the point within it that those ideas of infernal geometry are very closely connected to the runes because of the concept of runa. Runa is the ultimate mystery, mystery that draws us forward to know more of the unknown, that draws us forward into creating things out of nothing and finding ourselves through that creative process. The runes themselves are gateways into the same the same all-pervading mystery that of existence, of being versus non-being, that we draw upon in order to become individual selves. Uh, excellent. Um, another thing that I really liked about your book, and you mentioned this already, that you talk about uh, the Lovecraftian rites and the satanic rituals, and um, how these were originally written by Michael Aquino. Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, this will come as a shock to a lot of people? Uh, perhaps. Uh, the fact that those particular rites were written by Aquino was actually fairly well known. Uh, I don't know exactly the mechanism by which it became so, uh, but most people seem to be aware of it, whether it's because of Dr. Aquino's writings themselves or just because of the general awareness of 
these things that has come out over the last years. Um, you know, in the within the internet, it's a bit hard to keep a secret, right? right. You know, a lot of the things that LeVay did of concealing parts of his background, concealing some of his sources on some of his ideas uh, would be very difficult to do now. People would either call him on it or uh, they would, you know, publish a webpage denouncing it, you know, denouncing him as a charlatan and so forth. Um, which that's one of the difficult things about approaching LeVay's work in general it is the, you have to reconcile this is someone who was, um, let's be frank, deceitful about parts of his background, who had a habit of, of revealing many of the sources while concealing others that were at least as important as the ones that he revealed. For me, the value in LeVay's work knowing all this and knowing that he is a problematic figure, that he's a complex figure, um, is in uh, the synthesis that he made of these things is still unique. It's still pioneering and it's still um, something that we've not completely understood even you know, 21 year, 22 years now after his passing or 53 years after the advent of the Church of Satan. Um, I talk a bit about that in the book, actually, uh, because I think it's important to to be upfront and honest, we, we don't do ourselves any favors by perpetuating the untruths that, that he had created about himself. But we also have to look at, we also have to recognize that there's something deeper that goes beyond that. So it's not enough to just go, you know, what a charlatan and throw him out with the bathwater. It's you have to look deeper to see, well, there was still something there that was unique and that was the very profound, and that still has many implications that we've still yet to fully unravel. Yeah, I think that's the only way to to approach LeVay, is you have to acknowledge, you know, uh, the Ragnar Redbeard parts of it, and the, and, and the uh, you know, parts written by Dr. Aquino um, that appear in his works that were uncredited. And you, like, like you said, you understand that he's a very, that he's a complex, He's a complex um, figure, and you can understand that, and you can acknowledge that, and you can still appreciate um, the, the 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 fiery and robust things that he contributed to, it, the courageous things that he contributed to it. I mean, that's a huge part of it, right there, is the courage to um, go into this area that just no one had um, the no one had the cojones to go into at the time and in, in, the, in quite the way that he did. And you can do all that without deifying him. It does no good to just like deify him and say, oh, well, let's just pretend like all these other things like didn't exist. And, and he was like whole, Anton LaVey was whole and complete and perfect and, and you know, and there's no problem with it. So I think it, it's really, it's, it's helping. Um, I think it's good for um, the movement that people like you are putting out things like this that are honest about it and and are and are and are and are getting down to the essence of what really makes this stuff still relevant for us today. Yeah, definitely. Well, a couple of interesting things about that. One, um, it, it is worth noting that the contributions of Michael Aquino to the Satanic Rituals were done as a personal favor to LeVay. Uh, there wasn't a an intention to cover up his authorship of them. It was more that the uh, the book was released under LeVay's byline, and LeVay was the author of uh, the vast majority of what was in the book. Um, 
Dr. Aquino didn't ask for any a credit or any recompense for it. It was it was done as a personal favor favor for for Levay. Um, now it, that being said, there were a couple instances where Levay sort of like tweaked some of his wording. Uh, there's a uh, sort of a pretty notorious instance in the essay in that book called The Metaphysics of Lovecraft, where LeVay added a couple of paragraphs that kind of insinuated that Lovecraft was, was in fact aware of and maybe even had some part in actual black magical dealings, which is completely untrue. Um, that's actually not Dr. Aquino's feeling at all. Um, it was just something LeVay added because it added to like the mysterious of it. Of it. Um, the other thing, one of my favorite moments of LeVay from the early days of the Church of Satan from 1966 to 75 was in the late 60s he made an appearance on the Joe Pine show. Joe Pine was a uh, was a talk show host. He was kind of like the pioneer and that like really kind of like aggressive like confrontational type approach now uh, that, that's commonplace now it was very something not seen in in the 60s. In the 60s talk shows were basically there they're like help you sell a book. You know they they weren't going to like. Uh, you know, be mean to you or like try to like go to an argument. They were they were there as like a promotional thing, whereas Pine like wanted actual discussion. And he would, you know, he he would actually, you know, he would agree with people. He would argue with them for an hour and then say, okay, well I kind of agree with what you said. You kind of sold me with your arguments, that kind of thing. So he wasn't just like being confrontational, just to be like a like a jerk about it. He was he was just really trying to get down to let's cut all cut all the bullshit. Let's really you know have a discussion here, right? So my, one of my favorite moments there was when LeVay made an appearance. And for LeVay was on the show for maybe half an hour, and you can find this on YouTube. And Pine is just giving him hell the whole, t the whole time, no, no pun intended. He's really it's like laying into the guy about how can you believe this stuff, how can you do this, how can, how can you think this way, what, what, what would happen if people, everybody felt this way. And, and LeVay is kind of taking it all in stride, never loses his cool, calmly you know, explains – the, what the actual tenets of his philosophies and his practice were. It's one of those things that I look at to, to say that in those early days, there's a, there's a lot to, sit, to suggest that there really was some sincerity behind what LeVay was doing. It's sort of trending now to say, oh, he never believed any of that stuff. It was always metaphorical, was always atheistic, it was always uh, just, a, just a show. But if you look back at things like that, and you look at some of uh, the footage and things like Satanus, the documentary made in 1967, you read some of his writings, especially those defending the sanctity of the of the satanic priesthood within the church, and it's hard to. You could still say that okay, maybe it was a, a. You know, just a facade that he took for far too long, and that and that he was good at staying within. But it has to at least sow a bit of doubt there in terms of the, was he always just pulling our leg? And the point that I make about that in the book is that he, whether you, which side of that you fall on, whether you're on the LeVay was always full of that side or the maybe there was something to it and then it grew beyond what he could deal with and so he sort of retconned his stance on it. You still have to go back to what I was talking about earlier about the synthesis of ideas, about the way that he was able to bring together, to cut through the bullshit, cut through the complications, to apply Occam's razor to every aspect of the occult and come into like just what were the most essential aspects of it, and then to turn that into something unique that could have only come from the mind of Anton LaVey. So I, 
I always point people towards things like that when they, if they are really sincere about wanting to know more about what was they really about, what was he really like in the, those early days. The things like that, I think, show the the, the levee that that you know he would want to be remembered as as the person that really made sort of a stand for these things, for the person that was able to defend these things, yeah. because yeah. you know it, on something like you know have, have this guy on the other side of the of the table from you you know, chapping your ass for, for half an hour uh, about all kinds of stuff related to, like, the philosophy that you're there to talk about, you know, it's easy to get flustered, to get crack in it, or to backpedal on it and go, well, okay, you know, we say that because it sounds good, but this is what we actually do. There's none of that. There, There's the... He's either the best actor <laughs> of his generation or there was something to what he was trying to do, at least for him at that moment in time. And Pine ends it when, you know, uh, you can always tell watching other clips of Joe Pine when he couldn't crack the person because he had both people in there that were, that were full of shit and he knew it and he was going to, he was going to rape them through the coals, right? When he couldn't crack them, you know, you could tell that it frustrated him. But he ends up with a remark about LeVay of the, well, that's all I can say for now and I tell you where to go, but you would just enjoy it. <laughs> That's awesome. No, I've seen the I've seen the Joe Pine interview, um, and 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 yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, and it, that's one of the instances where Levey seems to express such sincerity about these ideas and such dedication, and the um, and Satanus also, which is also very early. I think that's like 1967 or so. Um, when that's made, very early stuff, and he's very sincere, and he very. Um, very candidly says, you know, that he's, uh, you know, in service of the man downstairs or, or something like that. Um, I'm in league with the devil as much as any man can be. Yeah. Which uh, happens to occur at 66 minutes and six seconds in, into the documentary. Is that right? That, that is that is correct. I did not I, I'm know that. Sure that. I'm pretty sure that was deliberate because it's a, they're talking to him and he's kind of having the conversation with the person off camera beside him. And then he looks right at the camera to deliver that line. Uh huh. So I, I'm pretty sure that 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 timing or whatever was, was deliberate. Right. Uh, yeah. No. That's uh, that's amazing. I didn't know that. Oh well, that's good to know. So if I need to get back to that place in the video to to prove to someone, then it's easy to to reference that. So exactly. I, I only discovered it when I was um, I was tracking the time in the in the video for the citation for that statement in my book. Uh huh. Oh, so is that is that in your book then? Uh, yes. Oh yeah, the wow. <laughs> so the um, one of the things about working with a, a professional publisher uh, with wide distribution and you know sales and the hundreds of thousands of some books um, is that they they do everything by the book so to speak. And one of those things is if you quote if you have a quote you have to source the quote. And so when I was looking for the precise quoting and the the method for quoting. Uh, DVDs or videos was that you cite the director and you cite the timestamp, among other things. So I had to find the timestamp, and that's when I realized it was the 66 minutes and six seconds. That's so and I, I, I think I, I was laughing for about that long after <laughs> before I could recover. That's so amazing. Um, another thing uh, I'll say about that about Anton Lavey and, and his video legacy that I find incredibly moving. And incredibly sincere is uh, from the uh, it's 
Speak of the Devil. I think it's like some of the last video stuff that he did um, where he's like playing keyboards. There's this long segment in it where he's like playing the keyboards and um, he looks over at the camera while he's doing They just uh, whoever made this film, they just focused on him like playing his music. And I mean, he's so he's so engaged in it and he's so good, too. And you realize as a musician, when you see someone else playing and you know that they're that they're good. That always gives you this sense of, um, uh, of um, I don't know what I don't I don't know what I'm trying to say here. Uh, sincerity or genuineness or legitimacy that they they actually know how to do that because that's few and far between great uh, people that we would call magi that were also accomplished musicians in some way or another um, is is a rare thing. I think you know um, I think of like Gurdjieff and um, like Pythagoras, they were musicians, and Pythagoras also, I think, figures in figures in prominently in your book, as does Gurdjieff. You talk about the Enneagram in there as well, don't you? I, I do. It's one of the figures that is in the part of the legacy of nine angled figures, along with the, the Valknut and uh, and others. So, um, another thing about. <laughs> the Lovecraftian rituals mm-hmm. that you talk about is the timing of, of when that book came out. And I never thought of this before that at the time there was a resurgence of Lovecraft interest. There's the band Lovecraft had come out. Um, the Dunwich horror movie was out there. It was and like, so, I think, yep. And so there was sort of a, um, uh, a popularity in it. So now how do you feel about currently where we are about Lovecraft today, because um, you can go into the mall and a hot topic and find Cthulhu merchandise. I mean, it's so, so out there. How does that yeah. figure in with things? So the um, so one of the big things behind that is that um, by all measures now, H.P. Lovecraft's work is entirely in the public domain, um, and so that's making it a lot easier for people to kind of walk off and do things with it. Um, as it turns out, it was actually technically in the public domain since the 1960s because Arkham House didn't properly renew the copyrights on much of his work. Um, but going by the the 75 year rule since his death in 1937, that put it 2012. Now, uh, effectively, everything is in public domain uh, within the, the United States. Um, interestingly, we're going to have a uh, I make going to make a prediction, bold prediction on your show right now that we're going to see something similar with the work of Aleister Crowley, who died in 1947, who now will have similarly much of things that are not already in public domain because of when they were written now become it. And that's one of the reasons you're seeing uh, the OTO creating new editions of some of his works, because new editions with new commentary have new copyrights. Uh, but going back to the original sources, it, a lot of this will become public domain in a couple of years. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how much of a, you know, sort of a revival of uh, Crowley comes up as a result of that. Um, but yeah, you, uh, and I think it's very interesting because, so a couple of things that it's easy to tell someone who's actually read Lovecraft versus someone that just is familiar with the memes, uh, because even though the, the mythos has taken on the name of the Cthulhu mythos, Cthulhu was actually a pretty minor footnote in Lovecraft. Uh, there's of course the story the call of Cthulhu and Cthulhu is mentioned in I think if I remember correctly one or two other stories just mentioned in passing um, 
other Lovecraftian deities such as Nagahotep, uh, Shindigaroth, um, show up much, much more prominently. So someone that doesn't know of, of those is clearly someone who has not actually read much of Lovecraft. They've only, they know the, the meme, they don't know the source. Um, now, that being said, I, th I think it's kind of cool. It's making it where it, it's, it is more well-known, which I think it deserves to be. Um, it means that some of it is maybe not taken as seriously as some people once took it, and that's probably a good thing. So I think there's room for all of that interpretations of Lovecraft. It's also, it's, it's put a lot of conversations around Lovecraft, the person, in, into discourse that maybe had not been talked about as much before. Uh, I mean, there were there were aspects of Lovecraft the person. Uh, he was he was fairly racist even by the standards of his time. Uh, things like that, that that make it where, like most great people, there there's problematic things in there. You know, no one is perfect, and a lot of times the things that make one person great, just like with Anton LaVey, the things the things that make them great comes with things that make them maybe this is not the best role model from some points of view. Uh, but I think with Lovecraft. Uh, it, it's it's important to acknowledge that uh, that deep deep failing of his. It's important not to try to to brush you know, throw it under the rug or pretend it wasn't there. Uh, but I think it's also necessary to look beyond that and go the entirety of his fiction, the entirety of his person was not defined by that. It just happened to be one particularly onerous part of his personality that came along with it. Um, and um, and so, yeah, so seeing what's kind of become of Lovecraft now and the imagery around it, I think on the, for the most part it's a good thing because it, with interest in his work comes people who are sincere about continuing to fulfill his work. That's why you have excellent film renditions of some of his stuff uh, done by the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, uh, who did wonderful versions of The Call to Cthulhu and The Whisper in Darkness. You have the, the appearances of it in mainstream film or references to it that pop up, uh, and now you have what's probably the greatest compliment you can pay any any writer. You now have the uh, the adjective form of his name, where you can describe fiction as Lovecraftian, and people now have an idea of what it's like. That's sort of the ultimate sort of compliment you can uh, pay a writer up to a point until it becomes a cliche. You know, when it becomes a cliche, then it's maybe you know not a good thing. Right. Um, right. But I, I think that part of that, it, it, it's helped kind of show the depth of what he touched and the depth of what his writing entails, where he has many imitators, but no one that's matched many things that, that he's done. And also you have now more of a movement of taking Lovecraft seriously as literature and uh, applying critical standards to it that we would have any other great literature. Um, and, you know, in some measures he succeeds there, in some measures he fails. Uh, some of it is certainly like a, a measure of style uh, about whether, you know, for example, the pro uh, proliferation of adjectives within his work. Some people find that to be poor writing. Some people find it the way that he weaves them together to, to be a masterful thing um, instead. Uh, so I, I think all these things that maybe weren't available to uh, Lovecraft's legacy before are now there because he's become enough of a participant in pop culture that all the things that, c that come with it, good and bad, now get attached to his legacy. Whereas before, even 10, 15 years ago for the most part, outside of most circles, you mentioned the name Lovecraft and the answer was who? 
Mm-hmm. Whereas that's no longer, that's definitely no longer the case. Even though many people know that more people know the name, but don't really know more much about the stories. So here's another thing that um, someone who doesn't really know Lovecraft would not know. Um, and you, and you talk about this in your book that Lovecraft was basically a, uh, materialist, not, mm-hmm. not in the, in the economic sense that that term is used now, but in the metaphysical in the philosophical sense, um, he was an atheist. He believed in science. He believed in a physical universe. Um, he did not believe in a, in a, you know, a, a, any sort of non-material realm, um, of things. And, 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 and yet, though he, that was his worldview, he wrote all of these ideas about things from beyond that exist in a physical sense or in a transdimensional sense. Anything that's happening could be explained scientifically, you know, if it happened in, in the real world. So how, how significant do you think that is in regards to Lovecraft's connection with the left-hand path in infernal geometry? Well, the thing about Lovecraft is, while he was a strident materialist, um, did not believe in magic or the occult or anything along those lines, the thing he did believe in, much to our benefit, was his dreams. He saw in his dreams something that went far beyond the, you know, the physical realm that could tap into something that he could communicate. Even if he didn't show that as something that he thought had reality in the same sense that, you know, I, I can pick up the laptop that I'm talking to you with right now, right? You did have reality in that sense, but it had a reality that they existed in a mind and that they could exist in other minds when he communicated them. There, there were many, many of the stories that were either direct analogs to those dreams or were inspired by his dreams. Many of the names that he spoke of first came to him in dreams. Um, the, one of the most prominent examples was the story, the short story or prose point really uh, called Nihilhotep was originally was almost verbatim one of his dreams. There was a letter uh, that he wrote to one of his correspondents where he described the dream fully like a year before he wrote the story, and the the details are basically the same. It was he had the same sort of the uh, same sort of nightmare that he was able to convey, and he realized there's something deep captured here that is worth communicating. Because I think. To him, it seemed that his dreams did take on a bit of reality by communicating them and by developing them in, into his stories. And they also became something that he could use to communicate with other people as well, of his stories, not, not his dreams. Um, he, was, he was a very wide correspondent. He was, a, he was a recluse in real life. You know, he spent most of the time you know, in, in his home, uh, the different places that he lived. Um, but he corresponded widely. His his collected letters uh, fill something like five two inch volumes. He was a voluminous, you know, prolific letter writer, uh, corresponding with um, encouraging young writers who were interested in his ideas or, or who were admirers of, of his, um, as well as people that were already established writers that he was friends with, like Robert E. Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, and people like that, and. The, the way that his dreams played into that, it gave him something to take him out of his rather mundane existence to, to inspire him about something beyond just his sort of day-to-day uh, living. And I think that it, it provided something of, of an escape for him. 
but it also provided some way for him to become more real or to feel as if he were more real than he ever could just sitting at his desk in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, I think of with dreams, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, in uh, Call of Cthulhu. It's in the story Call of Cthulhu, the beginning of Call of Cthulhu that starts out with a series of people who are having the same dream. And that's the harbinger of the evil that is to come. Right. There's um, That idea is actually kind of taken relatively seriously by Kenneth Grant. Um, we, we were talking earlier about um, the, the revival of Lovecraft in the early 1970s. Uh, so a few things that were going on there. You had a band from Chicago that uh, played psychedelic rock. They called themselves H.P. Lovecraft from the – this was in the late 60s. Uh, they were in Chicago, then they moved to San Francisco later. Um, you had uh, the film of the Dunnish Horror. You had the film by Roger Corman uh, and starring Vincent Price that was called The Haunted Palace for marketing reasons, but was in fact an adaptation of the case of Charles Dexter Ward, the Lovecraft story from 1968 or so. Um, you had uh, the the television series The Night Gallery, which was done by Rod Serling, the guy behind The Twilight Zone, that uh, drew upon a couple of Lovecraft stories on uh, Pickman's model and um, ooh, and uh, The Cold Air, I think, was the other one. I, I might be wrong about that. Um, but all these things sort of like were gradually introducing Lovecraft to the world again. You know, And, and keep in mind, this is what... Um, this is 30 years plus after his death. So this is you know, a bit of like late for, for a literary revival here. Um, so an interesting story that, that, that I was told by Don Webb, uh, and, and I, I know that Don Webb uh, checks his sources and this sort of thing, and so I have no reason to doubt the story, um, is um, when LeVay asked, Dr., uh, asked Michael Aquino to write uh, these rituals for that, um, of course, he was discussing this with other people within the church. This was not a secret. Um, he was discussing this with um, someone who at the time was a priestess within the church named Margaret Wendell, who later became one of the founders of the Temple of Set, um, and who also uh, sadly uh, passed away recently. Um, and she had been corresponding with a gentleman in Chicago named Michael Bertio, who was um, doing a lot of research on um, Haitian voodoo, and sort of connecting in weird ways to the, to the Western magical tradition. But he was also corresponding with, with, uh, with Kenneth Grant. Uh, Kenneth Grant had become interested in, um, in Haitian religion as a result of his interpretation of some ideas within Crowley's The Book of the Law. Um, Grant had been a correspondent with and a, an acquaintance of Crowley near the end of Crowley's life as well. And when... Um, Margaret Wendell mentions this um, to Bertio, he then passes it on to the conversations they have with Grant, and Kenneth Grant looks at this and goes, oh, well, that's interesting. I hadn't noticed that connection either, and then starts to get to start, pulls H.P. Lovecraft into his ideas. Um, so even though Grant's The Magical Revival first came out in 1972, this was also, which was the same year as the, as the Satanic Rituals, um, the influence of Lovecraft on The Magical Revival in Grant's book came in directly from Aquino and LeVay as well. So it, really you can trace the use of Lovecraft as part of magical work 
uh, solely back to Anton LaVey and Michael Aquino. Um, although it's, it's also worth noting that uh, the reason LaVey decided to include Lovecraftian rituals within the Satanic rituals was a suggestion of, of his friend, the science fiction writer Mike Resnick, who, while LaVey was struggling to find enough material to fill out a whole volume, Resnick pointed out to them, well, you have all the stuff you, you're interested in Lovecraft and all these other writers that talk about magic and strange things. Why don't you make up some rituals out of their stuff, too? This leads to the suggestion to, to Aquino to write all these things and so forth. So it, it all sort of, um, you know, sort of all these are sort of to, to credit or to blame, depending on your point of view, of sort of this folklore revival. Now, but back to the thing about dreams, one of the things that, the where where this approach to Lovecraft as an influence on magical work diverges sharply from Grant is that uh, Grant's theory, uh, which he wrote about uh, throughout his trilogy of trilogies, uh, Night Side of Eden and um, and the, the whole his whole cycle within the 70s and early 80s, um, was he contended that Lovecraft and Crowley were both sort of receiving the same transmissions from uh, from extraterrestrial intelligence or from you know beyond the astral plane, however you wish to look at it. Um, whereas Crowley was more aware of what he was doing because Crowley was a magician, whereas Lovecraft wasn't, but he had his dreams, and so he was able to he communicated with him his dreams. Hmm. Hmm. I don't quite buy it. I can, I can see it making an interesting connecting thread there. And it actually, there are some interesting parallels in some of the approach of Lovecraft versus Crowley and how they turned what they were in tune with into, um, you know, more interesting things. But I, I, I'm generally skeptical of the, you know, Love, Lovecraft wasn't a magician. Lovecraft wasn't a Satanist. Lovecraft wasn't, um, you know, a metaphysician, but he was being used by some external force because of his great imagination to do these things. I'm pretty skeptical in general of that approach, but I can... I, I'm also smart enough not to completely dismiss it out of hand. I just have to say to the that kind of thing, it's like, I'm going to need to see more before I, I can buy into that. Yeah, I don't really need to believe that to, to, uh, um, to uh, enjoy it. Um, and, and, and gain some value from it. So let me ask, where, where did you, in your life, where did you very first learn about H.P. Lovecraft? Um, after I joined the Order of the Trapezoid. I, I think I, 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 knew, I knew the name, uh, but I had not read any of the stuff. I, I, actually, the, 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 one, the one connection I did have to Lovecraft before that, um, even though I didn't pursue it in any, in any way, uh, was um, the cover of Iron Maiden, Live After Death. On the tombstone, which is probably Eddie's tombstone, inscribed on it is, that was not dead, which shall return a lie. The strange <laughs> death may die. Uh, which I, I think it, it, it's, I think on the cover it's credited to, um, uh, to the Mad Era, but it's not credited to Lovecraft, if I remember right. Maybe it is Lovecraft. I can't remember exactly how it's credited. Um, but it was one of those things of like, you know, a teenage metalhead, you're like, that's awesome, but it's not going to make you, 
you know, read a book, <laughs> right? right. Um, well, and, and they never, uh, you know, as literary a band as Bateman was, um, for those who, I know that you already know this, Paul, but for those who don't that are listening to this, we could we could do an entire podcast when we talk about Iron Maiden. They're still, after 30-something years, my favorite band. Um, I, you know, huge Maiden fan. I'm actually seeing them again uh, next month, um, in fact, um, on one of their tours. Um, as literary a band as Maiden was, drawing on things like Dune, um, you know, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, you know, Phantom of the Opera, all, all these wonderful things. They never did anything with Lovecraft, oddly enough, which I'm not really sure why. I would have thought it would have been right up their alley. Um, they did, uh, there are a few things, um, Bruce Dickinson, the, the lead singer in particular, um, is fairly uh, conversant in um, Crowley's material. In fact, he, he made a movie a few years back based off of a book of his called The Chemical Wedding, which was about the reincarnation of Elwister Crowley. Um, and and you have things like um, the song Revelations and the song Moonchild were both very influenced by by Crowley uh, uh, and both written by by Dickinson. Uh, but for some reason they never did anything with Lovecraft, even though they included a, a quote of it right there on the cover. Maybe they just thought it was cool. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, and they're British too. I think Crowley is a matter of uh, national uh, pride for uh, British heavy metal and occultish types from that time <laughs> period. Um, and you know, I, I have to remind remind you and and that and, and and let my audience know that Toby and I did a a uh, karaoke duet of Number of the Beast. That's true. At a dive bar in Hawaii a few years ago. <laughs> uh, and and the, the the crowd looked at us very differently after that. I think we were we were a bit too into it for their taste. <laughs> yeah. Where's the video? We need to find the video. I know there's a video for that floating around out there somewhere. There is too, and the person who has this video has so far refused to show it to me. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I will. I will be seeing this person in in June, later this month. We need to get that uh, video and and run it on the show here. I think. <laughs> that 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 would be excellent. So uh, I was going to tell you about where I first discovered H.P. Lovecraft, and it's not. And it's not much further away from from yours mm -hmm. dungeons and dragons and there was a, a D, D book second edition D, D books uh called deities and demigods did you play D? &D? no i was never a D, &D person yeah you missed out on that but you got into metal so that's yeah. like uh, according to the satanic panic there's one of like two or three pathways that lead to satanism one of them's heavy metal yeah, I had that one in spades. You got that one, right. And you just you just told us. You just explained how heavy metal and Iron Maiden led you to uh, eventually connected you with, uh, you know, the occult world. Oh, it, it, it totally did. You know, I, you know, when you're when you're first getting into this and you don't really know and like you sort of buy into like the marketing and the imagery and whatever. And so like you know, like every band you see is obviously in league with Satan, right? Oh yeah. Um, and so there, the the first Maiden. Um, first album that I had by them was was Somewhere in Time, which is still one of my favorites. I think it's one of the, the best works they ever did. Um, and the, you know, the lyrics and, and the song Caught Somewhere in Time, you know, almost kind of sound like, well, they certainly did at the time when I was a teenager, sound like, you know, the devil tempting you to, you know, to come, uh, to come enjoy eternity with me instead of the, instead of the, the white dude in the sandals. Right. And I remember, I remember thinking at the time, you know, I was, I was what, um, I was like twelve or thirteen when that came out, 
And uh, I remember thinking at the time, it's like, so so if Satan's telling them the lyrics to say, how does he do it? Like, do they just start writing and that, that shows up? Do like show up like the Ten Commandments? How does this happen? Like, I couldn't figure out, like, how you how you knew what Satan wanted you to say. Now, now Maine, of course, I mean, is not Satanist. They've been very explicit about it, despite even the, the, a lot of the bullshit around the number of the beast. It's actually based on an old Robert Burns poem, Tam O'Chanter, combined with a nightmare that Steve Harris had. I mean, it's it's not that. They were just, they were interested in interesting and dark things, and they did interesting things with them. Um, and so, you, you know, later you find out, like, for 99% of the bands that you think are linked with the devil, it's like, it's just it's just clever marketing, right? Um and then you find like the you know the the one percent that are right like King Diamond and um, and, and so forth, um, but yeah, heavy metal told, totally leads you to the dark side. See, I didn't need Dungeons and Dragons; I had heavy metal. So. Right, you you had you had heavy metal. So around the same time when I was playing Dungeons and Dragons, this is also deities and demigods. They also they had a Cthulhu mythos section um, where they explained all the gods, and they have you know their stats their hit points and this you know their magic spells and then there's also a section on egyptian gods and that's where i first learned about set so you know i thought that's all great for uh, dungeons and dragons and um like any anyone any kid who reads dungeons and dragons books eventually you start saying you know well i wonder if you can practice real magic so i started looking into the occult and stuff and going to my local bookstore and uh, eventually, that's where I discovered the actual Lovecraft books there, and I read a couple of those. And then I started talk. Uh, I started checking out the occult section, and um, eventually I found. Um, oh wait, before that, I got to I got to go back to the album part. Around the same time I'm playing D and D, I'm listening to uh, uh, you know music and metal, and I hadn't discovered Maiden yet, but I discovered um, Ozzy Osbourne. That's why I was really big in, in, in my uh, junior high school at the time was Ozzy. And uh, I got the cassette tape of Speak of the Devil, which is like the live al- it's a live double album where he just did Black Sabbath songs. Right. And um, I, don't, I don't think it's available anymore for uh, whatever weird, you know, political reasons. But, you know, it's got a cover on the cover. It's like him, uh, like puking up some like red jelly or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Does he have like horns like horns on that one too, or is that a different one? No, he doesn't have horns. He doesn't have horns on it. <laughs> he just looks real scary. But I was listening to that album and uh the song N I B. This is where this is where I first heard any Black Sabbath. My first Black Sabbath uh introduction was from this album. And his version of N I B on there. And when he says, My name is Lucifer, please take my hand and I looked at that picture of his like, you know, crazy face on the <laughs> on the album cover. And it freaked me out. I'm like, I got like afraid of the occult for like a little while, you know, and I didn't want to get into it. But eventually, because I was led back into the bookstore because of Lovecraft, I eventually started looking at occult books. And then finally, I found the Satanic Bible. And when I read that, I realized, oh, Ozzy Osbourne isn't actually a Satanist. You know, that's one of the one of the things that that book does uh, when you read it at that time is it dispels all of the media mythology that was around, like for us, like in the 80s, you know, that like, you know, yeah, all the heavy metal bands are all Satanists and all the urban urban legends that were going around at the time. So, yeah, Dungeons and Dragons are metal. Definite uh, gateway, gateway into Satanism. Yeah, if you're in the 80s, that was that was how they got you. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, Don Webb has a great story about that, too, with Dungeons & Dragons. I'm pretty sure he, he told it when he was on your show the last time as well. Uh-huh. And it's like the, that, that type of story, it's it's not unique. Yeah. I, I know plenty of others. Uh, I even know, you know there, now we have actually um, you know, a, a game designer within the Temple of Set who is, you know, includes setting themes in, in his work. Um, and that's, I think that's awesome. It's sort of like kind of paying back the influences that brought you here. Right. Because that's one of the things is you don't, you don't deny your influences. Even if you look at, okay, maybe it was kind of cheesy. Maybe you, you maybe you like some of the bands that I listened to then or like a bit kind of cheesy and obviously they're not really Satanists and all this. But you still look back at that and go, well, real or not, you know, cool now or not, it was still the gateway that brought you here. Right. Right. No, it's you know that's that's a, a really good point because it's the same. It's a similar point to say, um, a complex figure like Anton Lavey, where there's yeah. some things, some things that we've learned about him that have made some people react and say, "Well, just get rid of him then." You know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. And then on the other extreme, there's people that, well, let's cover up everything that we don't like and 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 just like deify him. Well, it's the same thing. You talk about like these these bands and stuff at the time, the 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 imagery and the symbolism, you know, and and this is something that figures highly in your book is symbolism and the power of certain sim- symbols, the power of certain angular combinations to convey certain impressions over time and lead to certain impressions that are at a much deeper level than say popular music is or you know than the musicians necessarily intended you to take from it yeah oh yeah i mean i remember the first time i encountered slayer slayer was the first band that i heard um where you couldn't just go oh well, maybe it's just a joke right even though something like venom that which was like over the top and satanic they still had songs like angel dust and teacher's pet kind of tongue-in-cheek stuff where you're like okay they're okay these guys at least know how to party a bit. They're not like completely serious all this, but like Slayer, man, like um, that was that was the one you look at and go, I, I I can't just write these guys off. There's something like deep and serious to this. I mean, right. I mean they, right. they of course are not actually Satanist either. Um, in fact, uh, you know, bassist and vocalist Tom Araya is, is to this day as a practicing Roman Catholic. Um, he he just can separate what they what they're singing about as like you know singing about horror movies and that sort of thing. Uh, same thing as like, you know, you can watch a horror movie and still be Catholic. Well, you can sing a song about Satan and still be Catholic, at least in, in, in his view. Um, but the, the imagery was powerful. You know, the imagery was, was something that, that stood apart because it was more extreme than almost anything else that you saw that time at that time. Um, or certainly it was easy to, to, to find, you know, the record shop at that time. Um, but it was also, they were unafraid to sing about really deep, dark, heavy stuff, you know, and, and, to, and to sing about in, in a, you know, a very um, almost erudite way in the way that they were, they were talking about. They, they were, you know, were well-read. They, they had interesting takes on the things that they wrote about. Uh, but it was, it was just that, that whole package that kind of came with it. Um, and you're that, talking that, about Raid and Blood here, right? Yeah, like Rain, Rain of Blood, even up to like South of Heaven, which was my first exposure to them. Um, and, and, and yeah, where it was, you know, b- before they started, uh, they, they started 
kind of changing around the time of Seasons of the Abyss. It became less about like satanic stuff and more about um, sort of like the evils of society, you know, serial killers and you know and all, and all this, um, which is which is also deep and dark, powerful stuff as well. Um, but it was also uh, a little bit of kind of a shift on their part of the. Uh, you know, there, there are more, e- there's more evil, there's, there's actual evil in, in this world without having to look, you know, to some other world to, to find hypothetical <laughs> evil. Right. You know, right. There's real evil right here. Right. You know, songs about war, songs about serial killers, songs about, um, you know, suicide, songs about abortion, songs about things, things like that. You know, and those things are, are they're, what they're glorifying so much as, just really pulling back the the covers and giving you a complete unvarnished view. This is this is real. This happened. That this is a real thing. Uh, this was, you know, this is real evil that you, that you can touch. So I I don't think anyone could listen to Rain and Blood or South of Heaven and 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 not think that these guys have not tapped into something. I mean, this this group of guys definitely tapped into something. So. How much do you think mathematics figure into the power of music? Say something like, I mean, definitely, it, it's a pretty mathematical album. Yeah. Rain of oh, Blood. Well, 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 Slayer especially, because up to that time, metal had been very much based on, um, you know, typical Western scales and, and the typical Western harmonies. You listen to something like Iron Maiden, where you have the two guitars playing in harmony with each other, where it's designed to, to, to sound very harmonic and kind of you know, pleasing to the ear. They don't use dissonance a lot. They, they don't use odd time signatures that much. Um, it's, it's meant to be musically, it's very classically influenced. Uh, what Slayer started to do, which I think was very unique, and it's very much like this, um, you look at, like strange angles in the fiction of Lovecraft, things are not quite right. They're not quite what you expect. They're not quite what the norm is. Um, you see the same thing with Slayer, especially starting with Hell Awaits onward, where they they stopped. Um, you know, in the early days, they, they were kind of like Judas Priest on steroids, right? It was like similar kind of riffs, but just like fast and heavier, right? Whereas with Hell Awaits, they they started becoming very influenced by Merciful Fate. You know, who were very a very overtly satanic man with King Diamond as the vocalist, of course. Um, but they they started to become influenced by those song structures and those riff structures, where now you start to have uh, instead of diatonic scales where it's all like nice and, and melodic, you start using chromatic scales where uh, where now harmony is is very has very little to do with the music. It's more about um, dissonance and it's more about the the strange time signatures on things like. Um, like Jesus saves, you know, the beginning of Jesus saves uh, has like very messed up riff. I think it's like in ten eight, alternating with like measures of eleven eight. It's like this very off kilter kind of riff. It keeps you, it keeps you moving, keeps you guessing, but it also kind of opens these possibilities for for things that weren't there before. That that's very much the musical equivalent of the strange angles of Lovecraft and Frank Belknap Long and writers like that. And it's very much of the the same aesthetic but in a different form that's used by these rituals and the satanic rituals and become part and parcel of the ceremony of the nine angles and the system that's derived from it. The idea that the unconventional pathway is the one that's going to lead you somewhere really interesting. The idea that the, what's unknown, what's unexpected is going to open up possibilities that were not there before. 
uh, that's where it becomes really um, it it, it, it kind of takes things to a different level. Uh, you can, for my mind, I, I can look at the advent of Slayer specifically, the speed, the di- uh, uh, the uh, the chromaticism and the riffs, the way that they would uh, you know, modulate like up or up or down a half step for effect in different parts of the songs, the out of control soloing and things like that, kind of becomes this this kind of watershed moment in metal that then opens the door for different expressions like death metal and black metal and a lot of the very non-conventional types of metal that came after. Um, it's very much in the same vein of these rituals and the satanic rituals uh, open up these possibilities that weren't there before and go off into different directions. There was a magazine in the 1970s called Nyctalops, which was a it was an early entry in Lovecraft scholarship and, and similar writers like uh, Smith and uh, Howard and whatever. Um, that uh, it included new works, but also included like analysis of, of Lovecraft, these themes of Lovecraft, that sort of thing. Um, one of the, the writers who contributed to that came across a copy of the Satanic Rituals, and he read this essay, The Metaphysics of Lovecraft, and he read these rituals, The Ceremony of the Nine Angles and The Call to Cthulhu. And he wrote an article for Nyctalops talking about this and talking about that he was shocked to find that people a, take this seriously, but also that the, the themes of Satanism modern Satanism were very resonant with it. Uh, he had read the Satanic Bible. He saw that this was that there were connections being made there. Um, you know, open, it changed things in, in, in ways. Um, There's an article by Dr. Aquino, which is reprinted in, in the, uh, as an appendix in my book, where he he sort of dispels some of the, 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 uh, the fear there, right? It's like, no, 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 let me tell you what was really going on with that. But he also talks about quite a bit about the seriousness of, of Lovecraft in terms of an influence on magical work. He talks about how you can take something from somebody that would have written off magic out of hand, and you can make it as something that's a, a very legitimate source to draw upon to create actual magic from its pieces. Um, and, and again, you know, don't, you know, something comes in that kind of shifts the, the possibilities just a little bit, and now this door is open. So I think it's interesting that the, the potential for the ideas of those rituals becomes first known in the Lovecraft community before it starts to become more well-known in the magical community. And I think it's just a, a product of a product of the times because even with the existence of the Church of Satan and then later with the Temple of Set starting in 1975, the majority of writing that was available about magical things was, was fluff. Yeah, it was just, there's no other way to put it. Um, you know, or as uh, Stephen Flowers might put it, occult is like Nick and Poopery. You know, things that, that it's just, it's like, this is like nonsense, nothing. It's just like throwing together, you know, like you throw spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks, right? The, no, no tradition behind it, no coherence to it. But then you, you, you start open that seat just a little bit. You put something that has a little bit of history, a little bit of coherence, a little bit of um, what if to it. What if these things were real? What if they could be made real? And then you open up possibilities that simply weren't there before. Yeah, and the other thing is that a, um, I guess we could say someone who follows more of a left-hand path paradigm is someone who's going to take these things and take ownership of these ideas and make them work, right? I mean, that's kind of like the whole left-hand path paradigm that I'm going to find these things that are real, I'm going to put them together, and I'm going to create magic with these things that I have. 
I can create magic through, you know, through making heavy metal music or, you know, whatever, whatever I need to do. Whereas this, there's this whole other population that they, they, who just wants to be told what to do. Tell me how to do it. You know, give me, give me the list of things I need to do to do magic. And that's it. That's all I need. Yeah. Well, there's a difference in, in my book on experimentation. There are two chapters that talk, uh, that give some concrete examples of magical works that, that can be done and things that you can experiment with. But it, it's always included with the, First off, don't just read them, do them. You don't understand you know, a Shakespeare play by reading it. You understand it by experiencing it being made real in front of you. Uh, same thing with magic. You experience it by doing it, not by reading about it. Uh, but it's also encouragement of the – There's most of them have um, some measure of analysis uh, accompanying them to say, this is why these are the important pieces here. They kind of show you what you need to build your own things out of because if you just take what I wrote about in these two chapters of the book and include uh, the, uh, the Ceremony of the Nine Angles, uh, Anton LaVey's The Electrician Forshkula, and uh, Call of Cthulhu, if that's all you do, you're not actually doing magic with the Nine Angles or with Angular Magic. You're just recreating what's already been done. But if you use those as something to, to inspire you to, uh, to create new works of magic, and to bring your own influences to them and mix them with these that are already there, uh, then you're actually doing something that is resonant with the left hand. Excuse me, resonant with the left hand path. Um, so that that's, there's very much an emphasis on the book on. Don't just read it, do it. Uh, that's why uh, there there's a chapter right in the middle of it that's about geometry, that's literally goes through. This is a point. This is a line. This is a plane. Uh, goes through the basics of geometry itself to make it so that this metaphorical use of geometry that we're doing with the nine angles becomes something that's actually is you have a physical basis for that. Same thing as if you've read in detail how you ride a bicycle, you know about the physics of it, you know about uh, you know what happens if you fall, you know why how the parts interact, you know all this. That's still not the same as actually riding a bike. They, they may prepare you for some parts of it, but that muscle memory of actually knowing how to ride a bike is not going to happen unless you put your butt in the seat and start pedaling, right? So that's that's kind of the, the thrust of the book here is take like – don't just use the metaphorical aspect of it. Know the metaphor itself. Uh, and even the chapter on geometry gives practical examples. It goes through an example at the end of how to take a, a compass and a straight edge and to create a pentagram how to draw a pentagram using five circles that you build up and you connect in different ways, uh, which is uh, learning what uh, Gerald Massey called the physical nature of the gnosis, of having something physical to attach it to so that it's not just an abstract idea. It has some roots within the world. It has roots within your own body that you can then feel and then extrapolate on to make something more grandiose out of it. So I, I think that that emphasis on that this is this is not to, just to read, this is to do. I think is is vitally important, and I think is essential for uh, the left hand path. And it's something that most writers of occult books don't want you to do, or don't care if you do, or 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 that they write write about things that they've not themselves done, uh, which I, I they treat it as sort of like a form of like genre fiction or fan fiction instead of something that's actual practice. Um, everything that I, every magical thing that's written about in the book 
is either something that I have personally done as part of developing it to hone it to make it part of the book or something that I've done very similar things that I've adapted to turn into the, the book. None of it is things of me just writing so hmm, that sounds good that that'll really that'll really get them going. No, this, these, these are things that are actual practices that I'm sharing with you, the reader, of things that, that I've done and that I know that they work because I've done them. It's not just going, well, that sounds like it would work, but I don't have time to do it. It's like that, that's not the approach I want to take with the book. So this is why I think that your next book should be about uh, heavy metal and the satanic influences in heavy metal, because you've done all these things. <laughs> you could tell, you could give a section on how to play like scales, you know, diatonic and chromatic scales before you go in and, and you know, explain the, the difference between, uh, you know, going from Black Sabbath to say, um, you know, Slayer, Rain and Blood. I like think it. about it. I'm just saying, think about it. I'm not, you don't have to promise anything here on the air. I'm just saying, you know, think about it get it published by Hal Leonard Publishing, put it on the rack at Guitar Center with all the other big books. Yeah. Hey, it's, there's some potential there, right? Yeah. Don't don't write it off. Where can people find the book? Well, it's available on the usual suspects, uh, Amazon um, and so forth, uh, as well as directly from the publisher at innertraditions.com. Uh, it's also, by nature of being published by uh, a publisher with such wide distribution, there are many Barnes & Noble stores which can have it as well uh, in major metro areas, um, as well as many occult bookstores, of course, will also be carrying it. Awesome. That's excellent. And you're doing some uh, appearances for it? Uh, yes, I have a couple of things already lined up. Um, I will be in uh, at Draconis Arcanum in Nashville on, um, let's see, it's two weeks from today, so that is the 15th um, and of June. Uh, I also have another appearance lined up at uh, Good Nature in uh, Columbia, Missouri, uh, which is on July 13th, I believe, um, the Saturday around that. Um, I'll, I'll send you links if you want to post these along with the video. Totally, um, yeah. I send me links for everything you're appearing on, um, for all your appearances. And you're going to be in, in the store like doing book signings and stuff? Uh, yes. Well, the, for both of those, I will actually be give, delivering a, a talk about the book about angular magic, the nine angles, and so forth, um, and then available for signing and uh, whatnot as well, you know, ma mingling and signing. Um, I also There are also a couple of podcasts that I have uh, uh, coming up uh, in uh, late June. I will be recording a podcast for the Church of Mabus, uh, which is uh, one I've appeared on before. They do uh, a lot of things around uh, uh, Bigfoot and UFOs and lots of interesting fun topics. Um, it's always a trip to talk with uh, their host, uh, Jeffrey, uh, who, who is um, a fantastic host and wide range of interests. Um, and also in uh, mid-July, I will be speaking with uh, the Occulture uh, podcast as well. Uh, I don't know when those will be released yet, but that's when those will be recorded. Awesome. Um, also, you can find me on Facebook under uh, Toby Chapel Author. Uh, there's a page that I've set up for that, um, as well as... Uh, I maintain a blog on Tumblr at uh, called Stony Rubbish uh, .tumblr .com, uh, which you can find me as well. Excellent. Yeah, send me the links and everything, and and we'll have them posted in the show notes for this for this episode, so everyone who watches it will be able to uh, reference it all and find you. Good. 
Well, it's amazing what you're doing out there in the world um, with this book. What is your highest hope for how the publication of Infernal Geometry might change things in the world? Well, my highest hope with it, and one of the reasons behind writing the book, is to find other people that are interested in these ideas that can become people that I can discuss them with who can uh, tell me of their own adventures with them so that I can learn even more about the subject. Um, that would definitely be my highest hope. Among other things that, that I, I hope happens along with it, of course, uh, would be for others to, to find that this is the path that they should be on, whether it be the left-hand path in general or perhaps even uh, the path of the Temple of Set in, in particular. Um, but it's not a recruiting book. Uh, the temple doesn't recruit. We have no need to recruit. Uh, we have no desire to recruit. Um, but by making good information available to the world, by cutting through the jungle of the things out there that are misleading intentionally or not about the left-hand path, about magic, about the runes, about related topics, by putting good information out there, by drowning out the bad with the good, we're doing important work. And we do that so that we can benefit from it in our own initiations of it as well. Excellent. Well, Mr. Chapel, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Uh, thank you for having me on again. I've always enjoyed uh, talking with you. Uh, we, we, we have great conversations, and I'm happy that, that at least in these instances, we record them and share them with other, with other people. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll have you back again for sure. And for all of my listeners out there, I want you to go out and buy Infernal Geometry if you haven't already, because it's a great way to keep the dark fires burning. <laughs>